Good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> and thank you for attending today's Boston Bar Association seminar on conducting voir dire in federal court. As is the norm and as, all, as we've all become accustomed to by now, at any time during today's program, if you have a question for any of our uh, distinguished panelists, please feel free to use the Q&A function. And at the end of the discussion today, we'll certainly have uh, a back and forth. As I mentioned, we do have a terrific panel today and I'd like to take a moment to introduce them to you. We are fortunate today to have with us Judge Richard Stearns. Judge Stearns is a district judge of the US District Court for the District of Massachusetts. Native of California, Judge Stearns graduated from Stanford University with his bachelor's degree in 1968 and also graduated with a master's degree from Oxford University's Balliol College in 1971. He then earned his law degree from Harvard Law in 1976. Judge Stearns worked on <clears throat> George McGovern's presidential campaign and later became special assistant to McGovern from 1972 to 1973. He was a speechwriter in the office of the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts from 1975 to 1976. He then worked as, an, as a prosecutor in the Norfolk County District Attorney's Office from 1976 to 82. He was then appointed as an assistant United States attorney for the District of Massachusetts in the early 80s, from the early 80s to 1990. And then he was appointed Associate Justice of the Superior Court in Massachusetts from 1990, serving until 1993. On the unanimous recommendation of United States Senators John Kerry and Edward Kennedy, Judge Stearns was nominated by President Clinton and confirmed by the United States Senate on November 20th, 1993 to the position he holds today. And we're fortunate to have him here with us today. Welcome Judge Stearns. We also have with us Christopher Pohl. Chris is an assistant United States attorney in the US Attorney's Office here in Boston, where he currently investigates and prosecutes transnational criminal organizations involved in racketeering, drug trafficking, money laundering, kidnapping, handling firearm-related violence cases as well. Before becoming a federal prosecutor here in Boston, Chris served as an assistant district attorney with the Suffolk County DA's office in Boston, where he worked in the anti-gang unit. He served also as the chief of the narcotics unit and deputy general counsel for the executive office of public safety and security, where amongst other duties, he helped devise and implement Massachusetts witness protection program. Chris is a magna cum laude graduate of Hamilton College and is a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Law. We also have with us today, Charlie Dolan, an attorney in private practice in Springfield, Massachusetts, who primarily focuses his practice on all levels of criminal defense in federal and state courts, as well as related civil litigation. He is a trial attorney with almost 30 years of diverse courtroom experience. Charlie entered private practice in 2007 after spending 25 years with the Hamden County District Attorney's Office in Springfield. During his tenure in that office, Charlie held multiple supervisory positions, including Chief of Organized Crime and Narcotics. During that period of time, Charlie investigated and managed major organized crime and narcotics investigations and prosecutions. Charlie has represented clients in a variety of districts in federal court all over the country, and he currently accepts appointments as a member of the Criminal Justice Act panel, the CJA panel, in 
Massachusetts. Charlie has served as lead counsel in numerous jury trials in Superior Court as well, including multiple homicide cases. Charlie has extensive experience in the presentation of appellate cases at the appeals court level, as well as the SJC. And for many years, Charlie was appointed as a special assistant United States attorney in Massachusetts. Charlie has held several teaching positions at many colleges in Mass, and he's currently an adjunct, adjunct faculty member at Western New England University School of Law, located in Springfield. Charlie's a 1978 graduate of Boston College, and he received a Bachelor of Science degree in geophysics. Charlie earned his law degree in 1985 from Western New England School of Law. We also have with us today the terrific Laura Martin, our co-coordinator for today's program. Laura, uh, <clears throat> Laura's practice encompasses internal investigations, government investigations and enforcement proceedings, white collar criminal defense and complex litigation in her position at Mintz. Laura's practice also includes advising clients in the sports and entertainment industry in matters concerning sponsorship agreements, marketing representation agreements, and name, image, and likeness opportunities for college athletes. Prior to joining Mintz, Laura was a litigation associate, and before that, earlier, a summer associate at a different Boston-based international firm where she worked on a broad range of employment securities and white-collar matters. Laura, before law school, served as a student public defender with CPCS, the Committee for Public Counsel Services in Brockton. And while attending law school, she worked as a government and neighborhood affairs assistant for our very own Boston Red Sox. Welcome, Laura. Last but hopefully not least, I'm your moderator today. My name is Vikas Dar. I practice in Boston. And for the past 20 years, I've primarily focused in white collar criminal defense and extradition matters. Welcome to our panelists and thank you to our attendees for your interest today. We believe we put together a very informative program with experienced panelists, and it's now time to just jump right into it. So Charlie, could you please illuminate our attendees? What is voir dire in federal court, and why is it an important part of practice and procedure? Well, the voir dire is a portion of jury selection where the court in the federal system will uh, inquire two jurors specifically as a group, um, pose certain questions to them to allow a determination or a, a, a kind of uh, survey of whether or not the person or the members of the jury can be impartial. And, and that's the goal of impaneling a, a jury is to find either six or 12 with alternates, jurors who are impartial, um, either statutorily um, with respect to the type of charge involved, any kind of subjective bias or any objective bias. And the questions are, are, are posed to just ensure that they are going to be blank slate. They are not going to be influenced by any outside sources, any prior conclusions, any prior um, biases that they may have developed over the course of their life. It is not there um, to exclude people from serving on a jury. I, I mean, in, in my experience with, with jurors, and I'm sure that everybody else is, there are jurors who just don't want to be there. And they will um, come up with uh, very many, very unusual excuses for not being there. But that's one of the reasons uh, of 
voir dire is to weed those people out. If somebody really doesn't want to be there, they're not going to serve um, effectively as a juror. So that's basic voir dire in a, in a summary. Great. Judge, uh, attendees would love to get a bench perspective. Is there a standard process to conduct voir dire in federal court and more specifically in your courtroom? Well, speaking for uh, judges generally, the word standard never really applies or fits well. Uh, everyone, every judge has a different way of proceeding, but I would say as a rule, in federal court, it is the judge, not the lawyers, unlike is currently now the case in Massachusetts, who conducts the questioning. Questioning is usually done at a high level of generality on the uh, first round, and only when a, a juror has a response to one of the judge's questions is follow-up conducted at the sidebar uh, with, of course, the attorneys, and in a criminal case, the uh, defendant present. Uh, my practice, and I think it's probably true of most judges, is prior to seating the jury, listening from the uh, lawyers, the types of questions that they would like to ask, both generally and where follow-up is necessary specifically. I'm excluding now that rare set of cases where individual voir dire is uh, required. But in the general run of cases, general mind run, uh, that is what will happen, is that the judge will ask general questions. If uh, there is a reason for follow-up that will be done at the sidebar, again, with the lawyers participating to some degree, if they uh, choose. And Judge, we're fortunate enough to have some attendees here who are uh, new lawyers or those seeking to build their trial experience. Could you illuminate our uh, attendees on what a peremptory strike is, a challenge for cause, uh, and those, those related issues when it comes to conducting voir dire? No, there are, um, this is actually one of my favorite subjects. The uh, peremptory strike is an inheritance from the English common law uh, that was actually introduced with jury trials in the uh, 12th century with the uh, statutes of uh, Clarendon. Uh, and the reason the peremptory strike arose is that in the original jury trial, the crown, that is the king, uh, had the right basically to select the uh, jury. And that was an important right because uh, a conviction of a felony under the uh, common law had only one penalty, which was death, but more important to the king, it meant forfeiting all your assets to the uh, crown. So to try to introduce some fairness uh, to the selection process, originally a defendant was given up to 35 peremptory challenges in cases. Over the centuries, that number began to uh, dwindle. It hadn't uh, petered out before the American Revolution and the American Constitution. So we took over the uh, practice from England. Today, uh, peremptory challenges have been abolished in England as they have in uh, Canada as well, interestingly. Uh, the controversy around the peremptory challenge is really the way it has been historically used, uh, particularly in the uh, South, to essentially bias juries against minority defendants by eliminating any potential minority juror. And that uh, practice of uh, precluding uh, service, particularly by African-Americans, led to another kind of uh, challenge, and this is more in the kin to the idea of a challenge for cause, and that is the so-called Batson challenge, or as we call it in Massachusetts, a Batson soars challenge. 
That is, if you can establish at least a suggestion of a discriminatory pattern of practice in exercising peremptory strikes by your adversary, uh, you can ask the court to make such a finding and then conduct an actual inquiry to determine the emotive for the strike. And if it turns out, if it, the strike was done for any of the expected discriminatory reasons, at least in that context, race, gender, Massachusetts now has been extended to a gay, lesbian, and transgender uh, people as well. Uh, the judge then, uh, in lieu of a peremptory strike, will strike that uh, juror from the uh, jury without uh, taking a toll on the peremptory strikes otherwise reserved for the uh, defendant. Because the government is generally thought to have the advantage uh, when it comes to a jury selection, uh, the defendant always gets more in federal court peremptory challenges than the government gets. It's currently, in a standard case, 10 for the defendant, six for the uh, government. Uh, so that is the practice. And the judge, though, however, is the guiding light, so to speak, in the sense of actually managing, conducting, and doing most of the questioning. I will say that my practice at sidebars, I tell the attorneys, if you're not satisfied with my follow-up with a given individual juror, suggest additional questions to me. And in 25 years, no one has ever suggested a question. And judge, can I press further? Is that because, uh, and of course, this is a subjective question to you, Your Honor. Is that because these attorneys feel that everything is thoroughly been covered? Or is it, uh, um, is it? Well, I, I would hope it's that, but uh, I doubt it. <laughs> I think, uh, as we all know, uh, there's nothing more terrifying than standing up in front of a yeah, jury as a trial lawyer. And particularly right at the beginning of the case, uh, I think all lawyers find themselves focused on other matters other than just let's get this jury seated. And, uh, you know, the judge is a kind of intimidating presence. And what if this juror is offended by the follow-up question that you uh, propose to ask and gets seated nonetheless? Am I going to waste a peremptory strike? I'm going to now have a juror uh, who is hostile to me because didn't like the manner or means by which uh, you were trying to get the judge to excuse me. I, mean, I can think of all kinds of reasons, but uh, I would hope it's because I'm really good at what I do, but I don't think that's actually the answer. <laughs> Thank you, Judge. Um, Charlie, back to you. And this is a question in tandem to you first and then to, uh, to Chris. Um, Charlie, how do you prepare to conduct voir dire as a defense lawyer? Do you have any tips to share with our attendees on how to make the process easier, streamlined, more efficient? And then to you, Chris, how do you prepare as a prosecutor from a prosecutorial perspective? Charlie? Well, I think first you have to be realistic in your expectations. Um, <clears throat> you're not going to be able to find a juror who's going to take your side, because if you do find a juror who's going to take your side, then they're, they're biased. They're not impartial. So you have to be realistic and focus on the intent of finding somebody who is unbiased um, and open to what your theory of defense is. And obviously that begets the question that what is your defense? And take for instance, a, a sexual assault offense where 
your defense's credibility or your client is is telling the truth and the other person is not. So you would focus your questions on questions relating to credibility. Um, the other thing is you're not going to be able to run roughshod over a prospective juror with 50 questions about what you had for dinner last night. They really have to be focused. They really have to be streamlined. Um, in actuality, and, and I'm sure Judge Stearns appreciates this, uh, keep them limited, short, easy answers. Um, you know, a suggested follow-up if you're allowed to uh, may be appropriate, but um, clarity of thought, um, simple questions that everyone can understand without too much thought uh, are, are the best. And again, limited to what your focus is and not just trying to find some way uh, to get a juror on your side, because that's just not going to happen. The court's not going to allow it to happen. Fair enough. Chris? So, um, I mean, I, I don't mean for this answer to sound flippant, but um, I, it's you know, the, the, the first sort of answer that jumped to mind when I um, heard the question is that the, the best way to prepare is to try to get a good night's sleep beforehand, um, because um, the, the sort of broad I mean, I agree with Charlie and, and you know, I think Judge Stearns um, set out sort of what people should expect generally um, from you know, judges in federal court, um, you know, exactly right. The judges are going to ask sort of a, have a lot of experience with asking these kinds of questions. You think you are able to influence them at the margins if you have suggestions. Um, but as a general matter, what you really want uh, in those uh, moments is to fight uh, what Judge Stearns said, uh, and which I think is true of every trial lawyer, which is, you know, you are focused on your opening statement and your first couple witnesses and getting the trial going, and you have to sort of push that aside and be present and really listen to the answers that the juror, that the prospective jurors give, because the the your feelings about seating them are going to depend almost as much on the way they answer questions, how they answer questions, their the tone of their question, uh, the tone of their answers, that's all going to be um, at least as important, you know, as the actual text of the or the transcript of what their answers are. And, um, you know, I think, um, um, you know, the, I mean, I really do think uh, it is, is less trying to game out the one question that you think is going to pin down people to be able to help you differentiate the yeses we want to, yes, we want to seat them versus the no that we don't, and really just sort of making sure that you are listening to them as, you know, is this somebody that I would want hearing this case for the next two weeks, right? Um, and is this somebody who I think is going to listen to the judge's instructions. And as this somebody who is going to pay attention to the judge's admonitions that don't go on social media, don't read the Globe, don't read the Herald. Um, and, and, and in order to really get the feel for that, you really just have to be present. So um, I do think that, 
you know, um, you know, judge, you know, I've had the um, opportunity and um, uh, to try a couple cases in front of Judge Stern. So I know that he does a very good job of, of sort of gaming out what the questions are um, for whatever your particular case is that would um, sort of uh, cover or sort of are likely to get um, prospective jurors to voice their concerns about um, a particular seating on a particular case. But um, I'll just say generally that in my experience here, the judges um, are very good at telling you in advance what questions they're going to ask. Um, they and um, it's not unusual. I know, like I tried a case earlier this year before Judge Burroughs. I think we got the written questions in advance. Um, and so, um, you know, you there is an opportunity for you to um, you know engage with the judge on particular questions. But it's as much art as it is science, and there's really no way to get good at it except to do it. And the best way to do it well is to not think that you are going to come up with a brilliant question that's going to automatically help you, you know, clear these people from those people. It's really just being present um, and listening. Um, that's the hardest thing to do when all you really want to do is get the trial started. Right. And you know, as Charlie illuminated from the defense perspective, and and Chris, as you just mentioned. Both sides obviously are um, achieving their own individual goals here, and the judges, of course, being impartial. So, a question to all three of you: uh, What are some useful sample questions to identify unconscious bias or otherwise? I mean, you know, from the litigator's perspective, as I mentioned, we each have a side. Um, the judge is trying to make it as fair as possible, but it's human nature to be able to elicit bias and to explore an individual juror's background. So any sample questions that you routinely use, Charlie or Chris, anything that uh, uh, clearly these questions are case specific based on you know mm -hmm. what, what we're all trying here, but are there any questions that you generally use in your arsenal um, if allowed to do so? Well, I can tell you, I, I, I tried a sexual assault case last week in state court and in state court, um, attorneys are allowed to interact with the jury on individual voir dire and which is from a practice standpoint um, a great advantage because you can kind of develop a not a rapport but you eye to eye contact with the actual juror the juror becomes familiar with you or or comfortable with you and in the sexual assault case one of the questions i asked is do you think a person who claims she was sexually assaulted is automatically telling the truth? Um, simple question, uh, clear, um, requires only a yes or no question. And if there's obviously a yes answer, it would beget a, a further question. But it's if somebody's going to answer that yes, obviously that's a, a problem um, with that juror's impartiality. And um, maybe not somebody that deserves or warrants being seated on that jury. Yeah, um, um, I mean, that's, you know, I think that's uh, Charlie made a good, um, that's a good suggestion. Uh, you know, it's hard to come up with a specific question because um, they are, they do tend to be, I think, um, fact specific and topics um, specific. I think the better, I think one of the things that you can do, um, um, and, um, you know, I, I talked to 
used not only my own experience, but a recent experience, but I talked to a number of colleagues who have tried uh, sort of white collar cases in the last year. And a lot of those have had, you know, pretty significant media uh, attention to them. And I think, you know, sort of one of the, one of the um, uh, sort of suggestions uh, and, or one of the interesting questions that illuminate, that got people to give very sort of, you know, fulsome answers is, um, you know, so not just sort of how do you get your news or what, you know, what, uh, what newspaper do you read? Are you a Globe person or a Herald person? But it was, it was social media. Um, how do you, what, what do you use? How do you use social media? How much do you use social media? And are you really going to be able to um, stay off social media during the pendency of the trial? And um, I think that that question was, it was, you know, that question, I think, um, taught the prosecutors a lot about people's ability to follow the instructions and follow the evidence and the sort of feel and the vibe that they got from asking that question, um, I think, told them a lot about the prospective candidate. It didn't really, it doesn't, you know, it's not really a question about you know, do you understand wire fraud or money laundering or do you, you know, how do you feel about, you know, healthcare fraud? But I think it did help them. Um, it, that turned out to be sort of people's reaction to that question turned out to be a good predictor of what kind of people do you want on the jury? And do you think these are the kind of people that are going to follow um, instructions um, over what can be, you know, lengthy cases? I mean, um, you know, I know Judge Stearns has had plenty of cases like this. That's the, the you know, um, trials here in this courthouse can last weeks. And the last thing anybody wants is to go three and a half weeks on a trial um, and then at the last minute lose a couple, lose a juror or have a problem with the jury um, because they weren't able to follow that kind of an admission. So I think it's it's very often not a question about the actual particular facts of a case, I think you, you should look for questions that will give you an insight onto whether how well this person is going to follow the evidence and how well will they listen to the judge's instruction. Okay. Um, to Chris and to Chris and Charlie, in your careers, um, have you ever had any courts decline to uh, to pursue any questions that you had previously prepared? Basically, it's a very Nice and professional of saying we all try to push the envelope. That's what we're that's what we're here to do. Any uh, any any obstacles you've ever come up against, whether in state or federal court, because of course both of you have had previous state experience here in the Commonwealth. You know, I, I can't. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Charlie. I mean, I can't say I've I've, I've had a uh, a judge sitting on a trial who's prevented me from asking, you know, what I wanted, but. On the other side of the coin, um, I really haven't tried to push the envelope as far as um, getting into the weeds on a, on, on on jury selection. Um, it, it doesn't do you any good to try to. Well, in my experience, it doesn't do you uh, any good to test that envelope. Um, again, keep it simple. You're looking for an impartial juror. Um, you're not going to get somebody who's going to take your side. You just want someone who's open to listen, um, as Chris says, and to follow instructions and to fulfill their responsibilities as uh, competent jurors. Yeah. 
Uh, I agree with that. I I, I think um, um, I mean I I think that the judges routinely say no to questions that have um, um, uh, and um, I mean I just know that um, um, one thing that I could think of that was was all the rage for a while, although I think it's died down considerably now, was um, um, a number of my colleagues in the office would uh, propose uh, voir dire questions along uh, the lines of um, um, the CSI defense uh, or to, pre to preempt uh, or to sort of draw out uh, the idea of, um, you know, um, are, are you the kind of juror that will listen to the actual evidence as it's presented here? Are you the kind of juror that's going to, um, um, you know, view the evidence through the prism of a completely, um, you know, um, uh, fictional sort of television movie world that uh, really can't be replicated in real life? And I don't know why we, I don't know why we continue to propose that voir dire question, because I don't, I think very few judges ever asked it, um, and and I think um, they um, and I and and I think you know that's because you ought to be able to pull that type of um, sense, instinct, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, feeling of a prospective juror from a lot of the other questions, and. Um, um, so um, that's one example of a kind of question that I know that uh, for a while was um, proposed, um, not often given. And now I think, um, and I, I think I understand why. So I'll leave it at that. So I had a somewhat different perspective. And that is the perspective, and this really elaborates on what uh, Mr. What, what our lawyers have been saying. Uh, you have to look at it from the perspective of a juror. When I was a younger and a trial lawyer, uh, jurors were generally professionals. Uh, we've forgotten now, but jurors in both state and federal court actually served terms of service, and they sat on multiple serial trials. They were very familiar with the uh, courtroom, with the uh, procedures, and with uh, what was going to happen in the course of a trial. Now that we all use this uh, one day, one trial system, most jurors who appear for service, that is the first time they've ever seen a courtroom, at least from that uh, perspective. Keep in mind that for most people, the thought of having to speak in front of a crowd of strangers was one of the most terrifying phobias that they confront. In fact, surveys show that we, as a whole, as Americans, as I like to remind uh, jurors and trying to calm them down, fear that more than we do death. Uh, so what you're doing is that you're asking a person to stand up in front of strangers. And what you don't want to do is put them in the position of embarrassing themselves. So the kind of question that, for instance, I would never permit and would backfire on the lawyer is if I looked at, the, have any of you ever been convicted of a crime? Well, you know, maybe somebody will step forward and say, yes, most likely they're going to pretend not to hear. But what you can do, and what I do, is ask a question. Have any of you, has any prospective juror been involved in a proceeding like this one as a witness, a victim, or a defendant? Now you give the juror a chance to hide in the question, and then they can come up and they'll privately, they'll tell you at sidebar, yes, it'll usually be an OUI conviction or a 
minor drug offense when I was uh, younger. So keep in mind, again, the juror, it's not so much often that they are unwilling to serve as that they are simply terrified at the experience of being put where they are and then having to ask answer questions. The other type of question I think should never be asked are questions that would violate the privacy laws if you ever really you know, tried to ask them in any other context. And I don't think they really tell you much. Uh, asking people their religion, uh, what they read, uh, do they watch pornography? Uh, these are the types of questions that I think tell you very, very little about a juror's ability to be unbiased as a juror in a case. But more often, what I'm looking for is not the biased juror, because I don't really find that many. And even those who bring some bias usually are pretty honest in coming forward and saying that, no, I was actually a victim of a crime like this one. I could never sit or my son you know, was a drug addict. I could not sit on a case involving uh, drugs. Those answers will come pretty uh, freely. But uh, what you want to do is get jurors, identify jurors who are just so terrified at the thought that they have to serve that they're not going to be able to function. Uh, you'd be amazed at the number of people who suffer from agoraphobia, the number of people I've had prospective jurors as we draw from the eastern part of Massachusetts. This would be the first time they've ever been in Boston in their lives, and uh, they don't find it. They find it an intimidating experience. Uh, and some people are just basically mentally unbalanced, uh, not so unbalanced that they don't respond to the jury summons, but they're clearly unfit to serve on a, a jury. So I'm looking more, you know, to get make it easier for you when you get to your peremptory challenges by eliminating those who are just on the surface unqualified to serve, or in some cases, as was said earlier by Mr. Dolan, completely unwilling, you know, to uh, be there. Fair enough. And picking up on your last comment, Judge, uh, any notable or interesting reasons why you've ever excused a juror in any of your past cases that comes to mind? Well, I do have people who have really inventive reasons uh, for not serving. And the best I remember was the a woman who insisted that her cat was undergoing surgery the uh, next day and that she was you know, so distraught by that prospect <laughs> that she knew she couldn't focus on the uh, trial. Well, I suppose we all have interesting and important things going on in our lives, but that's uh, that's definitely entertaining, to say the least. Um, Charlie, Chris, any uh, last thoughts on, uh, you know, we've, we've covered the issue. Uh, you, you gentlemen have covered the issue uh, very thoroughly, but any mistakes to avoid, um, you know, again, going back to the middle part of our discussion here, you know, as litigators, you know, based on our based on our subjective approaches, we, we all want to, we want to feel, and I think Judge, you mentioned this too, you know, we all want to feel like we have a commanding presence in the courtroom um, as attorneys, of course. But, um, you know, after getting that good night's sleep, Chris and, and Charlie, after preparing that defense perspective about how to articulate your specific theory of the case, we don't want to alienate these jurors at all, mm -hmm. civil or criminal cases, federal or state court. But any emphasis on mistakes to avoid, um, such as not wanting to appear overbearing or, or uh, unnecessarily aggressive at the outset of a case, when this Venari has no idea who you are yet, and they're, they're developing their perspective as well. So anything to avoid specifically for younger practitioners that, that might be helpful to them? And the question's open to everyone. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um... Um, 
Well, I mean, in, in terms of um, in terms of sort of mistakes, in terms of questions that you to ask, um, I know that um, sort of I took a sort of sample from uh, some of my colleagues here in preparation for today, and there was a lot of discussion about um, asking questions in voir dire that are going to get you. Uh, an enormous response, but not necessarily tell you uh, very much. Um, and um, you know, in the, um, I mean, this, this, you know, in the sort of, you know, drug trafficking, violent crime side, the the what the the way that this often manifests itself is if you mean questions asking about the opioid crisis or how it's potentially affected you, and would that make it uh, difficult to serve as a juror and um, you know the the number of people that answer that question is just always enormous, um, and it's heartbreaking actually. Um, but um, 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 and of course that's that is a question that um, gets an enormous response, but it doesn't actually get you the answer to the question that you want. And so you need to be careful to pair a question that is likely to um, get an, an enormous response to bring it back to the real reason for the question, which is, you know, um, and I, I've seen this get modified in, in voir dire um, sometimes in this um, court already that, um, I mean, it's almost to the point where everybody knows that you have um, that um, that type of crisis is, um, you know, something that's going to impact your family or your loved ones or people that you know and that you care about. It really is just a question of, is it is it such a personal connection that it would overwhelm your ability to focus on the evidence and to just be fair and impartial. One of the other ones in the white collar context that I was, um, I guess I was moderately surprised at, but um, several people mentioned it to me, is have you been the victim of a, you know, an internet scam? Um, they said that the, the response to those questions is just astronomical, that you get virtually the entire veneery who um, put up their hands. And of course, um, you know it's not maybe not quite as emotional as the opioid crisis, but it's not really telling you anything that is what you want to know. Um, and what you really want to know is, has it affected you in some way that is just going to make it impossible for you to be able to be, um, um, uh, you know, fair and impartial in this particular jury? And in terms of other, mis you know, in terms of personality mistakes which I think the judges do such a good job of controlling the courtroom that you really kind of have to go out of your way to make yourself uh, a spectacle uh, in a way that would disadvantage you with a jury later. But um, uh, you, um, but you, um, you know, nice people. I do think that um, the jurors are starting to judge you from the very first minute. And so people that are nice uh, and, uh, you know, um, gracious and, and that um, don't move quickly and expeditiously through the process and don't look like they're dragging on um, and look efficient. Um, jurors take note of all of those social cues and file them away for future use. So. Okay. Charlie, anything to add? I think that was uh, well put. Yeah, I think, I think one of the other questions that, that is I don't know how effective it is to weed out uh, biased jurors. What is a is a question that's often 
posed as to whether a person has a tendency to believe a law enforcement witness over any other witness. And um, that's kind of interpreted in many, many different ways. I mean, obviously it's there to try to root out um, bias against a uh, defendant um, if a person is obviously going, going to believe a law enforcement witness over any other witness, then that certainly shows bias that um, shouldn't uh, or should disqualify somebody from sitting on a jury. But the way that question is articulated tends to, it's a, a little, leaves a door wide open for anybody to answer that question uh, immediately as without thought as to, well, yeah, of course. Um, so I think depending on the wider question, depending how it's posed, can have uh, a chilling effect on your, your your prospective jurors, but really have not really delve into um, the weeds as to why that is, or does it actually does it actually exist? Okay, let me add one more thought. Uh, <laughs> rather than uh, Resenting the fact that the uh, judge is monopolizing the questioning of the uh, jurors, you want to be very, very attentive to the kinds of human signals that are going to inform your use of peremptory strikes. Uh, now, granted, that has to be intuitive for the most part, but very often, if you're paying really close attention to what someone is saying, you can make judgments about reluctances or perhaps predispositions that they might have that they might not be willing to disclose on a record in a way that a judge is going to excuse them for cause. Now, there are people, uh, I'm among them, include uh, former Chief Justice Marshall, Justice Graney, Justice Spina, Clarence Thomas, I can go down the list, who think we could eliminate a lot of the problems of uh, discrimination in juries by just eliminating peremptory challenges and confining uh, challenges to challenges for cause. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, uh, even uh, as Justice Lowey pointed out in this uh, recent case that Justice uh, George, I think, wrote, expanding the SOARS challenge to cover LBGTQ people, that uh, we've created so many protected classes, it's almost become an unwieldy system for a judge to think through in terms of the way we categorize people in terms of the potential for a uh, challenge. I, tend to think that the peremptories actually introduce more discrimination into the system than they actually call out. But as long as we have them, and you do have them as a matter of a right today, watch for those signals. They're going to tell you, is this really worth a peremptory challenge or not? Oh, that's a great point, Judge, because of course, from a practitioner's perspective, when, uh, when a prosecutor or a defense attorney sees that peremptory challenge be unsuccessful, we also have to be mindful that the rest of the venari is potentially seeing that, whether it's on a sidebar or not, body language and perception is a large part of what we do as, as practitioners. And of course, Your Honor, you know that uh, that's something that the bench views as well when it comes to uh, trial decisions later on in the case. So it's important for us to consider. Well, that was a wealth of information for our attendees. Um, I think much like uh, many of us I think our attendees were furiously taking down notes. Um, I, uh, Lauren, I don't see any Q and A. We'll give it a we'll give it a, a minute or so. But in the meantime, thank you all for taking your time out of your busy schedules. 
Uh, Charlie and Chris will let you get back to preparing voir dire questions and motions and limines for your next trial. And uh, yeah. Judge Stearns, you never know, after 25 years, maybe this program might spark some young practitioner or an experienced practitioner to step up and be the first in your courtroom too. Yeah, I may regret to... what I said. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, maybe that it'll be the first time that they respectfully step up and say, judge, you gotta let me ask this or that, but uh, you never know, you never know. Um, again, uh, if any attendees have any questions, please uh, let us know, but I think this is, I hope this has been an informative program. I'd like to thank all of you for your participation. Thanks to Laura for putting this program together with me. Um, I'd like to offer a personal recognition to attorneys Young Paik and Eric Christofferson. They're the co-chairs of the Boston Bar Association White Collar Committee, um, of which Laura and I are members. They have done a great job this year directing the, um, the substance of some of these programs that we as committee members have, have put together. Uh, I'd like to also especially thank Caitlin Blanchett and the Boston Bar Association for hosting this program, along with the many other valuable programs that the BBA routinely puts on that contributes to our collective ongoing legal education. And uh, Laura and I certainly encourage all of our attendees to continue attending these seminars. And it's been our uh, sincere pleasure today. So thank you to our panelists and thank you very much to our attendees. Have a great thank day, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you, Judge. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.